Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let's start, since I think we probably are all assembled. Uh, welcome to the LSE and to this um, debate organized by the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And it's one of a series of events that the LSE is running uh, this week on the occasion of the launch of the 2012 Global Civil Society Yearbook. And I have been told to say that you can buy a copy outside or you can buy a copy online. So please do so. Um, before we get going, I should just remind you that we are being recorded and that should you wish to send a tweet, positive ones only, please, hash LSE alternatives uh, is the way to do that. Um, the title of this evening's discussion is Moving Beyond the Diktat. There is an alternative. And so this is going to be a positive and upbeat discussion this evening. We are enormously privileged to have three writers, activists, thinkers, people who seriously engaged on the question of what the alternative or alternatives might be. Before I introduce them, I should say that my name is Henrietta Moore. Um, and I am the William Wise Chair of Social Anthropology at Cambridge and also have a very long-standing um, relationship with the London School of Economics. Um, let me start first of all by introducing on my left Robin Murray, who is an industrial economist, a pioneer of the free trade movement. Fair trade, sorry. There we are, already, already, already a terribly significant Freudian slip for which in the old days you would have been garroted by the LSE. Yes, it's fair, quite, it's fair quite trade. Of course it is, because of, of the way you imagine these discussions to go, I know. Very Freudian. Um, founded Twin and Twin Trading in 1985 and the Environmental Partnership Ecologica subsequently. And then immediately on my right, Gavin Titley, lecturer in media in the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, co-author of The Crises of Multiculturalism, Racism in a Neoliberal Age, and a very uh, regular contributor to The Guardian. Many of you may have read uh, Gavin's articles. And on my extreme right, Hilary Wainwright, founder, editor of Red Pepper, independent magazine of the Green and Radical Left and research director of the New Politics Programme at the Transnational Institute. And so we're here to discuss the fact that our political masters believe that there are no alternatives to austerity. We're asking a number of questions including why has this idea that there is no alternative taken such a grip on people's imaginations and particularly those who drive uh, economic policy and government. And beyond that, what might the alternatives to this way of thinking uh, be? Uh, our speakers are going to speak for between 15 and 20 minutes. We are then going to have a debate with all of you. So please get ready now thinking of what your questions are. It would be great if they addressed what the speaker said, but you can prepare your own carefully, which you've been preparing for a week, and deliver that, if you wish, briefly. So to start the discussion, uh, Robin, could I welcome you to begin, please? Well, um, the LSE uh, was a pioneer of different ways of thinking when it was set up. In, in a certain similar period, with enormous political activity and uncertainty about 
how things should go. And that's what, what LSE really, they were pioneers. So I think it is entirely suitable. That, uh, and I think it's the, actually the task, the, the task of everyone at LSE and everyone here to think about that alternative because we've had very, very strong civil society movements against this. But as, as always happens, what on earth do you do if, when you have occupied and you have really made a difference? And we've seen this in North Africa, but it was, I don't know if you saw Chomsky's uh, interview today in The Guardian. It was lovely Chomsky stuff, but it, there was nothing on the economy. What on earth, if, if you did take over, then how, what, what do you do? And uh, I think the, one of the leads I saw was that uh, what we believe in, said one of the occupiers, is cooperatives, credit unions, and fair trade. And this is the kind of area I have been involved with. And we can't just have that. It's not enough. It's, in my view, an element. I'm going to suggest it is an element. But it's, it's wider. So I hope this evening is going to be in the spirit what designers, uh, lovely designers, say is, you know, is how they do innovation, which is every, every idea is a good idea. And one throws them out, and then you can discard the ones. But we are at a point, I think, where we've been... We're almost in a prison, or a conceptual prison, which is also a political prison, about which way to go. So the current axis is between cutting the deficit and growth. That's, that's the way the political argument is going. But when it comes to growth, what does that mean? I'm glad to say at last it's about investment, and sometimes investment in infrastructure. That, that's taken about two years to get going. And always at this period, this is a, a key issue. But what infrastructure? What kind of investment? Do we just want the old train to you know, chug along the next time? Anything that can, as it were, hold its own, does it come up? And I think the Occupy movement say that this is not nearly enough. So what I want to say is I want to talk about three things. One is what Vince Cable said is we utterly lack strategy. And the second is... Uh, what kind of institutions would be appropriate for that? And the third is, how on earth do we pay for it? Those are three of the topics. So I'm going to throw out my ideas in relation to that. Now, as far as strategy is concerned, it's tended to be what we might call on the supply side, which is which industry do we back, or sometimes even which firm in the old days, um, or which sector, or which thing that seems to be important, like education or ideas and intellectuals and so on. How should we encourage this? Without a sense that I'm now speaking about Britain, we are here and we are, we are actually, a, a, have been in a certain sense a declining economy. How would we actually hold our own? Or are we going to be, as Carlotta said, Perez said the other day, marginalised? You know, and that also has to come in, that this is not just, we're not in a closed economy, we're in an open one. How could we find a place? You see, in the 19th century, we led the way, and we first of all had textiles, and then we had railways, and then we were ruling the world. But we actually missed out on the next lot, which was steel and chemicals. We couldn't get round to it. And the thing that we did keep on, and still keep on, is finance. Finance... And the ideas of all imperialist powers, which is, is, is uh, 
free trade and the free economy. That's what all empires encourage because that allows them to cash in their strength. And these are the two relics that we've had from the 19th century and we can't somehow move out of it. So what is it now? Because the Chinese produce the textiles and we buy our trains from Germany. So we haven't got those anymore. And is finance enough? It is, clearly is not. It is not performing its functions in relation to our society. So on strategy, I think that now we have moved from an era when in the 20th century economies of scale were significant to one where economies of system are the important ones. This is what everyone is developing, new systems using information technology, which are, can manage now highly complex, you know, kind of Walmart has whatever it is, 100,000 products all over the world in, I think it's 1,500 different branches. This is highly complex, but they can only do it about retailing. They can't do it wider. So what kind of systems? Why don't we start from the other end, which is what are the demands? Not the supplies, but the demands. And what are the demands which everyone has all over the world, pretty well, but which no one has an answer to? And these are the great issues of the moment. So we have climate change and all those little subdivisions of it from energy to transport to water to waste and resource use and consumption. All those are things which people are really wondering, how on earth are we going to do this? Now that's the first big issue that everyone has to agree is a world problem. So if we could find an answer to this, then we've got, if you like, a set of... Because it's like Lego. We're going to borrow from this, that, and the other in order to put together a system which can actually deliver on this. Not private, public, and this, that, and the other. We're going to choose whatever is relevant around that particular problem. The second I would call health and social care, which is that we've moved into a period, as far as healthcare is concerned, where chronic disease is the, is the problem not taking out, you know, putting a stent in your heart valve. That we've sorted, let alone sorting out typhoid or whatever. Those, those ones have been sorted, but how do you treat afterwards? How do you treat the epidemic, as the doctors say, in, in diabetes or in obesity? These are ones which everyone I know in the medical profession do not know how on earth to deal with them. Okay, let's have that one up there. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's not just that, but it's care, not only care of people when they're young and in, when, when they're going through these various crises in midlife, but uh, elder care. I went the other day to a meeting on social innovation in Asia, and there were the Chinese saying that this was one of the major problems. They did not know how they were... Because if you're destroying the structures the social structures which have done this in the past, then there's nothing to take over from them. So there's a, a, a second big issue. And the third one is what we might call education and training, but it, it is the, the development of capacities, not just technical ones, but human ones, which have become much more important and are linked to the fourth area, which I'd like to suggest tonight, which is, we might call it meaning. I was going to put culture, 
But it's, it's the Maslow point. If you look at the Maslow, you know, Maslow is, is actually, has been, oh, I don't know, twisted and, and kind of de-lifed de by its use in constant marketing things about going from the basic food <coughs> up to meaning up all the, the you, some of you may have seen the Maslow hierarchy. If you read Maslow's original stuff, it's wonderful stuff. He's a psychologist who said, look, instead of studying why people are ill, why don't we study the people who are well? <laughs> Let's, let's look at them and see what makes it. And he produces all sorts of tremendous insights. He's really worth looking at. And what happens is, as you move up, you go up to the thing with, well, what is life? You know, I've got my basic, I've got my basic food. Food and money, you know, are the same, which is you need a certain amount, but above it, it becomes a problem, either overeating or having too much money. So what do you do after that? And you can see that in the advanced societies, this is actually what is happening. And culture is the sphere where all this is being played out, shaped, formed, debated, aspired to. And this, I, I would suggest, is now a global and a universal issue. So, why don't we start with them and then put our Lego together to see what we can make of it. Okay, so which bits of Lego are important? What are the institutions? Well, there's plenty going on in the market, uh, some of which is very helpful and some of which is the opposite of helpful, where actually the market is driving, driving, you know, driving these issues, unfortunately, making them worse rather than better. So it's not going from the state in kind of new laborist way, from the state to the market. It is being very particular about, and in fact, I've worked with lots of wonderful people in the market, very free, very, who are actually also socially aware. They're not just doing it to make money. Um, so that's one of them. But of course, we have to have the state. You know, the way in which the state has been kind of hollowed out and reconceived in kind of, I think, isn't it amazing that utilitarianism still survives 200 years later and is sweeping the world and is, 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 has really leached out any sense of ethic and what the state, the 19th century sense, sense of the state stands for. And if you look, if we're now looking at it from the point of view of international competition, the only people who can run down the state are the people who are in, in the strongest position. Every other, if you look at late 19th century, everyone who was, you know, couldn't think, oh, God, the British got there first, they all brought in the state, either for protection or to move this or to move that. Of course, you've got to have, in your, if you've got a system, you've got to have someone who is, if you like, the orchestrator of the whole thing. And there will be battles over that, but this is our battle, which is how to, I am told, on the way here tonight by someone who's talking to Ed Miliband. This is exactly what he wants to do, is to somehow conceive of this kind of, you know, what, what are the things that we aspire to which we could put together? So you've got to have the state and a lot of bits of institution there. Uh, if you think now, China, Singapore, South Korea, Germany, all of them have very strong, very clear states. And we have got to have a renewed state in which people who work in the state believe in the state, in the ethic, and represent ethics within the state, including pay and a whole set of other things which counter, of course, the, 
the utilitarian element. P people kind of trying to, you know, I've worked in many bits of the state. Of course you find that. But the driving ethic has to be different. The second part, which has been given very little uh, proper attention, except by anthropologists, this is where the anthropologists are absolutely crucial, is what I will call the civil economy. Uh, we, we, all this work is on global civil society and its great role. The piece I've written here is on what I call the global civil economy. Because in the last 30 years, there has been an astonishing reappearance of an economy which was very strong in the 19th century. And it was strong in the 19th century because it was a reaction to what Polanyi called a period of market utopianism, when they tried to enforce in the same way the kind of policies that we've been experiencing now. And what happens? You had the Chartists who were, the, the Chartists were a civil society movement, but you also had the cooperative movement started in the 1840s and then mushroomed all over Europe. By the 1890s, the co-op in Britain, the co-op group of co-ops, was the largest corporation in the world, which is something. A lot of that was taken over by the state, thanks to the webs and others uh, in the LSE. And that, put, that played a role, in, a central role in the 20th century. But as that began to break down in the 1980s, you've got a resurgence of the civil economy. You can see it in the number of credit unions, in, the, in fair trade. It's an example coming out of nothing. I can tell you, when we started it, we didn't start as fair trade. We started with kind of a little, you know, small groups and getting together and saying, well, you know, couldn't we do something about this with people we knew over in Mexico and so on? But it suddenly has taken off, not because of us, but because it suddenly touched a moment. The number of international NGOs has gone up in 20 years from 5,000 to 55,000. They're only one little element of, the, of this side. And what I'd say about the civil economy, statistics always run behind everything, uh, so we haven't got detailed statistics, but what I'd say is the following. Uh, I spent the last two years working in the Young Foundation on social innovation. It is just incredible. Day after day, I found I, had, I was almost addicted to kind of incredibly inspiring things. You had to have one a day. I had to have a fix a day of some <laughs> incredible inspirational thing, which was then spread in answer to many of these things that I'm talking about. There are three areas that I notice it's sprung up in. One is those marginalized by the market. And I don't know if we have any Latin Americans here. But Latin America is just, and India, full of this. So whether it's the Argentinian workers who took over their factories, 200 factories, and all except five are still running, that was then, oh my God, everything, the tide has gone out, what do we do? Or the, this extraordinary peasant movement, which I know about because the people who, uh, there are 350,000 who supply us on fair trade. And... Uh, uh, many of them are in the co-ops which are part of La Via Campesina, which is to defend the peasant cooperatives against basically free trade. And uh, they are a powerful civil society movement, but they are also a very powerful civil economy movement. They are in co-ops. They've been much helped by fair trade, actually a tiny little fair trade. It is so small. 
but it has been very significant for them, both politically and economically. So on. So you've got them. You've then got what is very interesting, which is a whole mo huge movement around every one of those issues I was talking about. You just take off the lid and you'll find that the innovations have come from largely, not entirely, but from the civil economy. So I just mentioned the environment. Every single one of those has big civil economy movements of thinking, look, this is not the way of doing it. This is how we should do it. Very often starts as a civil society opposition on government policy. But after a short time, people say, oh, look, I, you know, instead of just going on, going to government, kind of knocking our heads against a brick wall, why don't we start a solar thing? Or why don't we set up cooperative windmills? Well, they did that in Denmark. And they created an industry. In, in, in the Danish wind industry became the leading in the world because, obviously, if a Japanese bank owns something just round the corner and it's whizzing all the time, you think, well, why have they come round and done this? But if it's your own noise, it's beautiful. To hear the money, well, actually, I've talked to them. They hear the money almost ticking round. <laughs> They're proud. And that's why it's been so successful and unsuccessful, actually, here because this has not entered in. So that's the second lot. And the third, which is just the last 10 years, is amazing, is what we might call the new cyber civil economy. And if we think that, what is it, 60% of the world's basic software is based on open source, that is incredible. Anyone who doubts the civil economy should just see what is being created on the platforms of the new web. So that, I think, this is, this is local, very often in orientation, but utterly international, informationally and communicationally. Most of these, and there are lots of wonderful examples of everyone in touch with each other, but applying it locally. Now, I want to just briefly go on to my third bit, but to just put as headings, I think SMEs, and particularly family firms, are often quite near to the civil economy and often good allies in our project and are also very innovative. Uh, I think finance is central in, in exactly the structures of finance. And here the Germans, and something we might pick, pick up later, have got an entirely different financial structure, which actually helps all this and is helping enormously. Uh, compared to ours. Just think that the Germans have a state bank, the KfW, which last year spent 70 billion, 70 billion, this is a state bank, and on energy efficiency, which is they've been doing in the way I'm talking about, we had we, the proposal for a green investment bank, is 1 billion from the government. They last year did 23 million, the year before 25 billion euros. This is now serious, and the Germans are applying their seriousness of the thing I'm talking about. And lastly, there are a whole lot of intermediaries. Now, as far, because I've only got two or three minutes, I just want to list under the heading of finance and to encourage us all to think freely, we've got to have new, complete, we have got to be so innovative on how we finance this. That is the, the demand. So my list will, just to give us, you know, this is the hundred. Don't quibble if I've got it wrong but just add another 10. But this is how we should think about it, we're doing like this, we should be entrepreneurial, we should think just like a business, how do I raise the cash, how do I do this, how can I, you know, how can I use my assets to make money? 
Well, the first is you have public corporations that make money. Instead of kind of keeping them down and saying you mustn't think, not at all. The Germans have always, at one stage, it was the majority of their public revenue came from their public things, and they, that's what they would do. They would make money on them in order to, re to reduce the amount of tax. And we have got many assets that we are not using. Mariana Matsukatu gives many examples where actually the state has contributed to new information technology but gets nothing back. That's number one. Number two, hypothecation. The BBC, which incidentally should be allowed, this is one of our great assets, should be allowed to expand, not cut back. We have, we have something which is so strong there. And uh, they should be able to make money and not only lower the license fee through their money, but indeed make so much that they can actually hand some of it on or indeed use it to encourage others who feed into them, including culture. I think we could have a health utility uh, which to promote what is called public health, which everyone talks about but has only 1% of health expenditure. We set up a utility to do this and we'll fund it through a tax on crisps and the alcohol tax and this, that and the other. Education. Just think, think like that. How can, this is another of our wonderful assets that Britain has got. How do we expand it, not cut it back? This is incredible, the current policy of cutting back what we're doing. Uh, we can have transport uh, paid by congestion charges. We can have local banks. We can have what I call founder's rent, which is getting some of the rent from land through development trusts, or indeed, if you're building a railway, let's have the land on both sides, which is what the US railways were funded by. We can have trusts, which are a form of voluntary taxation, which incidentally was used in Bogota in the uh, 10 years ago. We can aim to drive down living costs through the way in which we ch charge and, and produce the energy efficiency will lower energy, energy prices for everyone. We can have employment policies through introducing a second currency. Perhaps I'll finish here by just saying that one of the interesting proposals for Greece at the moment is that they have both the euro and the drachma. Now try this for Ireland, which is the punt as well as the euro. And what the drachma would do was to create an economy, and some of your tax will come in drachma, you'll earn some of it in drachma, and you can pay part in drachma and part in euros, and it will then allow you to employ all those people who want to work for the things that need to be done within our strategic perspective. Then you begin to be in business. Thank you very much. So the potential of the civil economy, new financial mechanisms, new methods of payment. So now we turn to Gavin to hear about what is happening in Ireland and the discourse of austerity there. I have a slidey to contradict the chair, but that might be as upbeat and positive as it gets, at least for a while in this talk, my, <laughs> my stirring and uplifting conclusion. Um, what I'd like to talk or discuss today for a 
while is to look at what's happening currently in Europe, to put some current political developments in Europe in context, before moving on to my main subject, which is looking at rapidly shifting and emerging forms of resistance to austerity politics in Ireland. And one thing which I think has been very central in international coverage of the Eurozone crisis is that Ireland has been kind of paraded as the model pupil for austerity by the IMF and the ECB. And government strategy, in fact, has very much depended on this kind of semiotic capital as well to present themselves as the model pupil and to differentiate themselves from more troublesome southern neighbours. And for several reasons, accelerated over the last few months, that strategy, I think, and general social and political acquiescence with austerity is beginning to be withdrawn. And what I want to concentrate on in this talk is to look at how that might happen. And that when we talk about alternatives, it's not just the rational proposition of alternatives, but also looking at at what moment do agreed diagnoses of the problem emerge on which alternatives and alternative political and transformative projects can be based. Now, when it comes to the development of credible policy alternatives and programs, I'm really the hewer of wood and the carrier of water on this panel. Um, as the chair mentioned, my academic activities lie elsewhere. And I really came to, if you like, activism and analysis around what was happening in Ireland, because along with many other journalists and, and activists and academics, I spent a lot of time shaking my skinny fist at the way in which the crisis was mediated in Ireland and the way in which there was a lack of investigation of the social consequences of austerity and a lack of a really meaningful analytical approach to looking at the, context, the, the crisis in Ireland in an international context. And it's that kind of media activism that I've written uh, written about in the yearbook. But one of the things that I've noticed in Ireland over the last few years, and it runs contrary to some of the assumptions that you see in, in otherwise quite interesting writing on the crisis, which suggests that there is a lack of alternatives or that there's a lack of progressive imagination on the left, broadly understood, or whatever it might be, is that one of the things that was deeply frustrating in Ireland over the last few years is, in fact, there's no shortage of well-developed proposals for alternatives to austerity. Be it if we just limit ourselves, for example, to thinking about what trade union economists have been proposing, independent think tanks, a significant range of community groups, and in relation to, for example, a role for the state, there have been several well-developed and well-costed proposals over the last few years for looking at the need to repudiate unsecured bondholders, to use state reserves to invest in infrastructural projects and job creation, to use the recapitalization of the banks to bring speculative investment under control, and if you like, to create a banking sector ad adequate to a small country, to enact more efficient taxation of wealth and, and and corporate profits and so forth, there's been no end of such ideas. In fact, in many ways, the crisis has been quite a creative one politically and analytically and in terms of community organization and civil society action. But what has obscured a lot of this is that when it comes to political debate and when it comes to media debate, the idea of being asked the question, what's the alternative, is to assume that what you're proposing when you talk about alternatives is a kind of a, an alternative to something called capitalism. And that unless you come up with an alternative which is like social reality in an IKEA flat pack that you can then sort of unfurl, that you have no business being part of this kind of discussion. And this misses, of course, that there is no coherence in many ways to global capitalism at the moment. I think the point made by Jamie Peck in his book Constructions of Neoliberal Rationality, which is that what drives the neoliberal project, if you like, is the political will that allows it to fail forward, is something which has been very much missing in the debate in, in Ireland, that Ireland is in many ways a laboratory for a particular kind of 
foreign direct investment dependent economy in the, two th in the 1990s and the 2000s and now very much a laboratory or a petri dish as I'm going to call it for austerity. But what has happened over the last few years or, or rather the last few months is that there has been and you can see this, I think, across Europe, the dwindling credibility of austerity and a multi-layered and not unproblematic political opposition to it. So the, the space, I wonder, to come back to Peck's terms, the space to fail forward, I wonder whether there is space still to fail forward and if that's something that is going to drive the hunt for alternatives. I want to reflect for a moment, because I'm going to use this in thinking about Irish society, on the structuring idea of this little seminar, which is the idea that there is no alternative, which we are implicitly responding to by saying that there is an alternative. As we know, it's a widely kind of circulated shorthand, and really what it signifies is the foreclosure of the political and sequestering the economic from the realm of the political. And this sense of it, which is very post-political, very triumphalist, this kind of end-of-history sense, is a very dominant accent for the idea of there is no alternative. But at the same time, when we say there is no alternative, we also make an ideological promise. And that promise is, as we know, that a free market, a rhetorical notion of the free market rather than any empirical one, is one that can deliver the greatest good and the greatest, um, maximize the interests, needs and desires of people and so forth. So under conditions of temporary growth, to, to use your terms, and some form of settlement in the intractable conflict between labor and capital, then this promise is not so much believed, but it has certain forms of investment, if not commitment. What is happening in Europe under particular conditions of this crisis, the speed of the destruction, the severity of the underlying causes, is that what I think is happening with this, uh, with the, with this notion of TINA is that it's taking on a third dimension, that of threat. And it's the unfurling of that threat in Ireland over the last months which I think has galvanised political opposition and that's what I want to look at. And maybe we can talk more about what's happening in the Eurozone uh, later on in the discussion because I think that is the extension of the kinds of threats which have been made in the periphery, if you like, to the kind of emergency federalism that we see in the, in the fiscal compact and the way in which the kind of oversight, uh, soft colonial oversight in the periphery is being extended, if you like, to constitutional measures in the Eurozone core, which is starting to feed a lot of this multi-layered and multi-faceted um, political opposition to it. And it's something, I think, that brings, back, brings us back to the question of getting beyond the diktat depending not only on alternatives, but on working on the diagnoses and understandings of the crisis that will also allow us over the next years to combat the kind of populist narratives and racialising explanations of the far right, who are also, of course, making a lot of political capital from the current crisis. So it's with those kind of introductory comments that I want to change the slide for a start, and, and turn a little bit so that all of what I just said there was, was under the heading of are we witnessing the hubris of austerity politics, which we can come back to later on. Okay, here we are. So, one of the, the, the media cliches of the crisis is to look at Ireland as a, as a laboratory for, for austerity. In other words, to see how far you can suck demand out of the economy, to what extent you can, you, can, uh, you can cut and slash public investment, cut and slash social welfare, to what extent unemployment is tolerable before you get some kind of political backlash. And in that sense, the notion of it as a laboratory for, uh, for austerity is a, is a very useful metaphor. 
From another vantage point, of course, it's been held up not just as a laboratory of what's possible, but as a laboratory of, of passivity. And we were talking about this beforehand with Robin, who was pointing to the map in, in, in the yearbook here, which looks at activity, uh, global civil society events relating to austerity measures in 2011, and which mentions one large march, a trade union march, which was held on 27th November 2010, which, as many trade union marches at the moment amount to, to walking people to the top of the hill and walking them back down before they got too radicalised and expected too much from this little outing. So Ireland, which has been one of the laboratory for austerity, only has this to show for the third year of austerity, for a year which saw the fourth of emergency budgets which cut across social provision, which cut, cut public sector wages and so forth. So the refrain of the Irish political class over the last few years, which has been speaking to the totem of market conference, has been to reassure investors and to reassure the ECB and the IMF that we are not Greece. And this has been returned with interest, as we saw at protesters in Sintema Square in November 2010, who said, we are not Ireland, we will resist. So Ireland has become this kind of strange metaphor for good behaviour and at the same time for overweening passivity. And I think that neither of these do justice, really, to thinking about what's happening there. And that's what I want to try to, to, to analyse, to think of Ireland less as a laboratory case and more as a petri dish. So I've already said that I'm not an economist. You can also see now that I'm not a biologist, but I'll move on to, to, to look at some dimensions of it anyway. In the literature, and there's a very interesting emerging literature looking at the global economic crisis, there's a very widespread recognition that 2008 to 9 presented the kind of potential for a kind of paradigmatic break. As David Graver put it, it was the beginning of an actual public conversation about the nature of debt, of money, of the financial institutions that have come to hold the fate of nations in their grip. Now, as Graver points out, this was just a moment. It was, in many ways, a hiatus for the preparation of austerity as a kind of reclamative project. But Ireland, in many ways, I'll say in the slide for a minute. One of, one of the, the reasons why people look at Ireland and they see a kind of political passivity is because in many ways this moment never even emerged. This moment in 2008, 2009 never even emerged as a way of thinking about what was happening to the country at the time. Now, of course, the property crash in 2008, which led to the, ultimately to the state securing unknown losses for the banks, which led to the loss of investor confidence, which led to the Troika, in, in, in effect, uh, uh, suggesting very, very rigorously and suggesting an offering in a way that couldn't be refused that Ireland take a bailout. What, what that should, many people should have seen that coming. It was very obvious that around the turn of the, the, the around the millennium, that an economy which was, which, which was booming in terms of foreign direct investment had become more and more dependent on a property bubble, had become more and more dependent on credit. And in fact, a property bubble, as the economist Dan Finn points out, that relative to the size of the country has few parallels in modern economic history. So what we ended up with then in 2009-2010 was a situation where the state had offered a blanket guarantee on deposits and bonds in six banks for up to 440 billion of bank debt and was put in a situation of enacting austerity budgets which came with a whole series of really quite, quite, quite nasty conditionalities when it came to the privatisation of state assets, when it came to the slashing of public service, public investment, the end of public investment projects, uh, slashing social welfare. We know what the drill is. 
So given this, and given the severity of the cuts, the question is, why wasn't there people on the streets other than in these highly choreographed union marches? Why wasn't there any parallels with Greece or with protests or with the kind of spontaneous movements that we saw across not just Europe, but obviously North Africa in 2011? I think it's important to try to understand how this happened or why what looks like passivity could actually be regarded as, if you like, as the gradual hemorrhaging of credibility from austerity politics leading towards a point where certain kinds of diagnoses and certain kinds of solutions no longer seemed credible. And while this seems like a long time, it was also quite accelerated, I think, in the way in which it happened. One of the reasons why, or several reasons in fact, why there was very little activity, very little popular activity and mobilization in Ireland at this time, is that the IMF bailout, uh, the Troika bailout agreement, was signed just two months before an election. And the general election in February 2011 saw ultimately the destruction of the Fianna Fáil party, which many people compare to the PRI in Mexico, but I think that's deeply unfair on them, but, but destroyed a party which was regarded and regarded itself as the natural party of government. And because it regarded itself as the natural party of government, it was inseparable from the narrative of boom and bust. And therefore, the, elec the election became very much about punishing them and bringing in the new. And of course, the opposition parties, Fine Gael, uh, which is a centre, centre-right party, and Labour, which are now in government, were very clever at branding the election a democratic revolution, making, if you like, affinity, but at the same time distance to what was happening elsewhere. And what this led to was an understanding of the crisis as something which was down to domestic mismanagement, that it was down to kind of cultural psychoses around the need for land, that it was something which, if we swept away the corruption of small town councillors, and if we had better governance systems, if we had more responsive parliamentary democracy, that all of the more intractable political economic questions would simply melt away. So on the one hand, then, there was a sense that representative politics, just over a year ago, had delivered the chance to resolve this crisis. Along with that, the main traditional mobilizers of civil society, the trade unions and the NGO sector, were very much compromised by what was known as social partnership, which was essentially a corporatist arrangement with government, which was designed to allow kind of modest increases uh, in, in wages along with industrial in, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for, in exchange for, for industrial peace. And when partnership was abruptly cancelled in 2009, trade unions found themselves, who were very much used to having the ear of power, they found themselves suddenly cast into a role, and very much a role which was informed also by the right-wing media, saying that the trade unions as a vested interest are part of the problem. So the union leaderships, which had become very professionalised, which had become in their own way very clientless, found themselves in a position where they had a rest of membership, but they also had a government partner who no longer wanted to live. Listen to them. So the trade union movement was in many ways, despite all the good people and good things going on in the trade union movement, it was very disoriented. Similarly, NGOs, which had been used as service providers and policy analysts and policy developers within the structures of partnership, also found themselves cast outside the tent. And all of the skills around mobilization, around campaigning, around advocacy, had also in many ways been blunted by these political arrangements. So very many of the big NGOs in Ireland and big community groups didn't quite know what to do with this new political reality. So very many then of the main mobilizers were not available at this moment in time. And that's why and what I want to do is give a kind of chronology here of different approaches to political alternatives which emerge out of that kind of vacuum, if you like, would emerge out of that kind of confusion. I'm going to give almost a kind of a, a sense of them over time, which of course it obscures as much as it illuminates, but it's a way, a kind of heuristic device for thinking about what's happened over the last few years.
The first stage of thinking about political alternatives in Ireland in this period, after the bailout, was really uh, um, a set of alternatives which which, which focused in on this idea of better management, that if we have better governance, that if we have better, uh, more, responsive, um, more responsive government, if we have more empowered local government, that then what will happen is that a lot of the problems will be solved in this way. So they internalised very much this idea that the problem, if you like, was a cultural one. And what was, was necessary then was a kind of technocratic response. And one of the interesting things in the election in 2011 was the amount of economists that were elected to Doyle Air and to the Parliament by simply saying, well, what is needed here is, is, is a clarity of rational economic thought, because the problem has been people who don't know how to handle complex financial processes in an open economy such as Ireland's. So the first set of alternatives, without going too much into these different, into these different movements, I can talk about them later if necessary, but three very different ones here. This one, Ireland First at the top, was essentially uh, a, 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 an astroturfing project by, by tax-exile billionaires who wanted a more business-friendly environment and a more compliant media as apropos this kind of democratic renewal in Ireland. We had something over here called We the Citizens, which was about citizens' assemblies, which could then help to inform public policy. But the public policies, which came from very rarefied citizens' assemblies, went to a panel of political scientists who decided whether these, whether these, were, really, uh, um, whether these were really sound or not. And then you had something here called Claiming the Future, which was a big national movement, which was very important in the sense that what it did was it tried to put the question of values and what are the social values that need to be protected and need to inform debate. But again, minus a kind of political economic analysis, there wasn't too much that they could do with this movement. At the same time, you had quite a, a, a deal of, of activity within the community groups, community groups in Dublin and other urban areas, which are very much based in kind of surrogate social provision a lot of the time, in other words, dealing with social problems really at the level of, 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 of marginalized and underprovided for communities, which very much focused in on a different kind of analysis of the need for alternatives, which was really to insist on the human costs of austerity, which was to try to, if you like, and here is something called the spectacle of defiance and hope, which was an incredible event in Dublin just before Christmas. But one of the reasons for the resort to spectacle, of course, was because a spectacle was an attempt to engage in the fact that in terms of awareness, in terms of public attention, in terms of the mediated understanding of the crisis, there was very little represented and very little reflected of the actual costs of what was going on in different communities. So I know one community activist involved in this who said that around that time he went to a meeting which was being held for groups who were, who were putting together different aspects of the, of the protest, where one of the men at the meeting told him that he, because he, he had a particular breathing condition, he normally got three bottles of oxygen a week from the health service, and now because of cutbacks he could only have two. So as he pithily put it, the Troika have asked me to breathe less for Ireland. So what they were really trying to get at was the fact, if you like, that austerity is not just something which can be discussed theoretically. It actually has social costs. And those social costs, because they're not biddable, if you like, to certain ways of representing the crisis and talking about solutions, were simply for the most part absent from the public sphere. At the same time, of course, and I'm not going to talk about it too much because it may come up in the discussions later, given that Robin has alluded to it in relation to Noam Chomsky's piece today, is that you had a, a, a quite a big um, Occupy movement in Dublin, which occupied outside the Central Bank in October 2011. And what was interesting about it, I think, was we could talk in detail about the nature of the Occupy movement, but unlike other Occupy movements, which were galvanized by two factors in many ways, one was by the hostility of the state and by the police, another was because of their relationship 
relationships with, for example, organized labor, the Occupy movement in Dublin was never really regarded as a threat, but it was cleared one night just before St. Patrick's Day because it wouldn't be nice in the global spectacle of St. Patrick's Day to have this kind of evidence of dissent on the streets. So that kind of global sense of market confidence and market in, in, of, 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 of um, the confidence fairy, as Paul Krugman put it, was very much behind, ultimately, the clearing of Occupy Dame Street. But while it lasted, there was a lot of interesting things going on in it. And I think what's been important about it is, first of all, the, its, 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 its refusal, its sense that we are occupying space to show that there's an incompatibility between capitalism in this conjuncture and people. I mean, ultimately, that's what was, what was being communicated. But also because in the way in which the Occupy logic has spread, and it has spread in very interesting ways, for example, to non-unionized workers who have used factory occupations to deal with the fact that, for whatever reason, suddenly one morning their jobs are gone. And this is one of the most long-running one of these occupations, the Vita Cortex workers in Cork, who've been occupying now for 130 days. But of course the Occupy logic, itself depending on awareness, itself depending on coverage, also means that there has been, that they have fallen out of the public eye. And where that brings me to then is the, what has happened over the last couple of months, where, as I said, I think what has been happening is that it has taken a long time for the credibility, for the incredible ideological labor which goes into sustaining the credibility of austerity politics. In many ways, it has melted away. And when it has happened, it has happened quite fast. And one of the reasons for this is something which I can't go into in detail now, but the household charge campaign protests, which was the implementation at the behest of one of the conditionalities of the Troika Agreement to introduce a household charge, and this was simply mass boycott of this, not organized by any obvious campaigns, even though there was a big campaign, but more than 50% of houses refused to pay it. And I think one of the reasons for it is that it's brought together both the material cost of austerity, so in other words, it's a flat, it's, an, it's a regressive charge because it's 100 euros regardless of whether you're up to your neck in negative equity or own a mansion. But the idea which was in the media at the time that, well, 100 euros isn't a lot of money, simply clashes with the fact that there was a study recently which showed that nearly half of households have only got 100 euros left at the end of the month after bills. So if you like, on the one hand, there was the material sense of it, but also the symbolic, the symbolic nature of a household charge and, uh, to, to solve a property, the, the collapse of a property boom. And I think that what's happening right now is there's a lot of political energies, which I, I'm not in a position to really, if you like, give a, give a diagnosis of what's going on. But what has come hot on the heels of that is the EU fiscal treaty referendum. And the fact that what I was talking about earlier, promise becoming threat, the promise of austerity, which has fallen away and which has been diluted, has been replaced simply by threat. There is no alternative but to vote yes to this treaty. And when you're put under those kind of political conditions, there's going to be some kind of reaction to it. What that reaction is, I think, is part of the discussion we're still having. Thank you. So the credibility of austerity measures is waning. 19 billion of austerity cuts in the United Kingdom has only cut the deficit by 9 billion. So now, Hillary, please. Thanks. Well, it's great to be here. And um, I just, I'm going to talk about the civil society and the state and also economics and democracy. But I'll just say something about the LSE, because Robin said something about how the Fabian tradition led to a certain kind of displacement of the cooperative tradition. But I was just thinking about how, in a way, and I'm going to be a little bit critical of the Fabian tradition, but um, it's, I, on the other hand, I feel a huge admiration for, for Beatrice Webb 
Because in a way, she made a mega contribution to civil society. You know, I don't know how she did it, but she managed to both create the LSE and the New Statesman. And I think, in a way, I think that we must sort of follow that ambition, in a sense. I mean, in a way, she was providing through the LSE and the New Statesman a, a kind of a civil framework for debating and educating and spreading the ideas of a new political paradigm. And I think you know, we can see that um, developing with Occupy, with Indignados, but also that goes back to traditions that probably began in the late 60s and 70s. And in a way, if we want to have a real impact, we've got to sort of get away from this idea that civil society somehow means the margins. Mm-hmm. And we've got to think big about the institutions of civil society. Um, so I sometimes dream about Red Pepper helping to form a kind of school. And, and in a way, Mary's work and, and the centre that she's been now established and worked for before, I mean, created before, I mean, you know, has been exactly of that ambition. I mean, I was just reading in bed <laughs> the other morning um, the Civil Society yearbook in, in proof and just thinking about this 10 years of documenting, not just documenting in an academic sense, but in this civil civil servant idea of providing a resource that's then um, really useful and confidence building for civil society across the world. So um, in that sort of spirit of, of the ambitions of civil society, I'll um, begin to, I mean, I suppose what I want to talk about really is, is, is the sense in which the civil economy in all its different forms is actually also about, is about refounding democracy. That sort of link between democracy and, and economics is, is fundamental and is really what I want to talk about. And just to sort of emphasize that, I, I was talking to um, some people I've been working with in Brazil, you know, the great pioneers of participatory budgeting, you know, really trying to um, open up the kind of financial black box of government, local government, and subject that to both transparency but then popular involvement, you know, and I and many other people have been quite sort of excited about that. But, but, but we were talking about economics and the importance of a sort of politics of production and she said yes that was the problem with participatory democracy it actually lacked really any connection to economics beyond the running of the budget so even the kind of things that Robin and I did at the Greater London Council which was you know a long time ago and you know, was abolished by Mrs Thatcher but partly because it did link economics with politics it, we used the, the state which is a you know, considerable body the GLC then had budgets of millions, big as many countries, and we use that very consciously in its purchasing policy, for example, to, to, to achieve social goals, goals of training, of equal opportunities. You know, we wouldn't give a contract unless um, the company met these social purposes. Um, so what I want to first start about, start with, just to kind of m- remind ourselves of the, of the kind of state of politics, but also the significance of alternatives that are emerging. I don't know if people um, kind of were shocked the other morning when the Hansard Society report on political engagement was reported, uh, which, which described how, I think, um, uh, interest in politics had declined from 58 last year, which was pretty bad, um, to 42% of the population being in, having any interest in politics, which is a sort of all-time low ever since the Hansard Society began this, this audit, which is about 10 years ago, um, that 30% say they definitely won't vote. Um, only uh, under 50% in the sort of early 40s said they would, they would vote. 
So you've got that kind of disengagement from mainstream politics, which in a certain sense is to do probably with a feeling of powerlessness and what difference will voting and engagement in mainstream politics make. Um, but then on the other hand, you have, as all the speakers have described, the kind of new activism uh, symbolized by Occupy. And um, Gavin talks about the sort of ritual of the demonstration. And I just illustrate this alternative politics, this, um, in a way, economically active politics, I'd say, um, by a demonstration, an indignado demonstration I went to in Barcelona, which was just you know, half a million, um, and it wasn't even the biggest. And it ended not with you know, um, speeches by trade union leaders or political leaders. It ended with people planting a, a garden, planting a, um, a sort of vegetable garden. Uh, it also ended with people occupying houses, occupying empty houses, occupying an empty hospital. It ended with action, action that continued. I mean, all that, that garden, it was genuinely planted. You know, I studied it for myself. And, and, um, and, and, the, and I said, well, what's going to happen to all these plants? Well, they were going to be distributed the next morning, I think, or well, later that night. Everything went on very late at night, um, uh, to, to community gardens around Barcelona. Um, you know, when I talked to people I participated with about what had happened to the, um, the squats, to the, um, to the hospital and so on, they were continuing. So the demonstration was simply a, a means of uh, energizing, you know, direct action to influence um, the running of housing policy, influence the running of the medical um, policy. Um, so um, that... In a way, what I suppose I want to talk about is the way in which um, any sort of remaking of democracy, any reclaiming of democracy um, against sort of um, imposition of austerity has got to be underpinned by uh, a, 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 a powerful economics, a politics of production. And one reason what led me to thinking this, apart from, you know, working with Robin, and, um, is, is um, thinking, you know, why, and this is particularly brought on by the experience of the NHS, the... the the, the passing of that bill, in spite of you know overwhelming um, public opposition and the opposition of all the the, the different um, uh, professional groups in the health service, and it made me think you know why why is it that um, the the welfare state the sort of social democratic settlement if you like uh, post war has been so easily dismantled, you know in spite of public opinion being generally for. Um, public services genuinely, genuinely for uh, you know, um, progressive taxation. You know, and, and there's a lot of uh, very good um, uh, survey material even done in the sort of Thatcher years that said actually, you know, contrary to opinion, actually public opinion, more contrary to, to sort of commentary, public opinion was, has always been um, pro-public service. But anyway, why was this the case? Why, why, did, why is it that privatization has got such momentum? Why did the uh, sort of regulations of the, of the uh, market, why were they so easily dismantled? And, and sort of thinking about it and looking into it a bit, I, my basic argument is, is, is twofold. Um, it's, it's because um, social democratic parties never had a real um, politics of production, that in a way they always relied on um, uh, the private sector uh, to generate the wealth that they then redistributed through the welfare state and so on. They, they treated production as, in a way, kind of neutral, uh, not something to, to engage in directly. 
I mean, there'd be all kinds of industrial strategies and, and so on, but they were all just consultative, all sort of nudges, a bit of incentive there, but no direct engagement um, in production. Even in when, when the, um, um, the, the Labour governments and so on took over the um, nationalised industries and so on, they were run in a very either military manner or, or on a sort of quasi-commercial basis. There was no sort of involvement of, in, of citizens to kind of defend it, to, to expand it, to think about its values, as if power wasn't really directly uh, involved. And, and in a sense, what's happened, the financialization that um, Gavin describes very vividly, in a sense, was driven effectively by... Um, by production, by, by corporations who kind of moved um, capital out of production um, into finance, which brought much greater returns. And labor governments were sort of constantly vulnerable to a kind of, on one hand, a sort of blackmail if you, if you do do anything radical. I mean, this happened when there was an attempt at a radical industrial policy all these corporations will go, which actually is a longer discussion, but I don't think it is true. You know, corporations need markets. They've got to invest somewhere, uh, and the kind of markets that European countries offer are, are, are a major attraction. Um, or they were sort of vulnerable to corporate capture, which is in a way what's happened with the NHS. You know, McKinsey, basically, um, the, the huge big private consultants have basically occupied the, um, the, the, uh, the health department. Um, and so what, what's the kind of alternative to this? How do we, how do we overcome this? Because the other dimension to that, which is where I'd be a bit critical of, of Beatrice Webb, uh, is that in a way um, social democratic parties never really fully recognised the potential ally they had within production. You know, they always, in the end, relied on private management uh, for information, for you know, changing the direction of production in any way to meet government policy. And in the end, private management wasn't going to um, wasn't going to ultimately comply. But actually, what um, Labour potentially had was all the knowledgeable um, workers, designers, technicians, every single level. You know, if you think about the unions in their heyday, they would bring together um, workers with, with skills at every single level. They, if they were treated, if those workers had been treated as um, not just uh, wage earners, not just voters, not just sources of, of funds for the party, not just you know, um, narrowly workers, but actually as knowing producers, there was the basis there for a different kind of politics of production. I mean, it was tried to some extent, but, but not powerfully enough, and in the end, the, the sort of interests of finance and the city sort of overrode those kinds of experiments. But similarly, you know, with the, 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 the public services, the involvement of citizens, the, the treatment of users of public services, again, as knowing users who could, again, be a source of uh, insight, innovation. I mean, in a sense, the public sector was always vulnerable to the accusation of not having a mechanism of innovation, and therefore the market was sort of brought on as the only dynamic of innovation, whereas actually a detailed democracy, not democracy just in a kind of vague participatory way, but an actual detailed production democracy, sort of produce, producers of public services, um, you know, could have actually given a real dynamic um, to, to, um, to the innovation and improvement of the public sector. So that's really where I think we've got to look if we're going to remake democracy. We've got to look at sources of... Um, um, 15 minutes. 
Oh, you mean that's what I've had? Oh, right, so I've got yes. Sorry, I thought I'd gone. Um, so we've got to think: what would the politics of production mean now in a context where the traditional trade union movement have been, you know, pretty marginalised? Um, and labor's highly fragmented and so on. I think we've, we do have to think about labor in a different way. I mean, I suppose I, I want to think, I mean, if you think, what, what is it that's in crisis? It's the financial system that's in crisis. People, we still have our capacities to create, to design, to care, whatever it is. Um, so can we use that creative capacity of labor meaning labour in a very broad sense, not just wage labour, but labour in culture. In the whole, if you think about Robin talked about the free software movement. There's a huge amount of creative labour going on autonomously from the market and the, and, and the state. There's labour in the home, there's all labour in care, all kinds of different forms of labour. Could that be strategic key to uh, how we get out of this mess? Um, and I know I haven't got long, but I think that's, that's what I want to argue for. In a way, I want to um, argue for a, um, a politics which is, which is um, in a way, learning from the Occupy experience, but also learning from the women's movement in the 70s and so on. A politics which is combining um, exemplary action with program, so that it's about activity and actually s solving things. I mean, in a sense, the right is so successful um, because it's already got a practice. You know, it's, al it's already running the economy, in effect, so that it, it's always had this tradition of being, or this reputation for being the best able to manage the economy. And that's partly because it is, I mean, it's running it in a pretty messy way now, but, you know, it's, it's, it's had examples. And there's a way in which, you know, we don't engage in, in um, actually sort of producing things and... Um, using where we do have examples like the NHS, uh, we don't make that central to our politics so that in a way um, the experience of, of occupying housing or um, the kind of um, direct action uh, involved in setting up co-ops, I mean, could be also the basis for political programs. So political programs are not sort of abstract um, documents but are rooted in you know, actual experiences and also those experiences are a source of the, the ideas for those kinds of um, programs. Uh, I think you know, also even if we think about um, organized labor, I mean there are lots of experiences now where um, the trade union movement, it's this peculiar combination of a very conservative body, um, you know, defending its own interests because it's now you know, for all its weaknesses, it's still got considerable sort of resources, and that leads it sometimes to be extremely conservative. Um, on the other hand, faced with privatization, there are now a number of examples internationally, particularly around water, but also around local government, where workers have, have thought to themselves, well, actually what we're doing is really useful. So they've thought much more about the sort of use value of what they're doing, rather than just you know, getting better wages, and have resisted privatization by saying, actually, you know, we know how to run these services better. Uh, we know how to save money, but that money goes not to some private company, um, but actually to uh, improving frontline care for old people or for, for, for children or, you know, high-priority care. And that's happened in a number of places around Europe. And I think it's a kind of model of how, if we think about labor beyond just wage labor, beyond just 
the, the, the you know, fight for wages, but actually in terms of the use of that labor, it provides, a, a, again, a, an alternative um, sort of economics of, of, of alternative politics of production and therefore a basis for refounding democracy. So I think I must end there. But what I want to talk about, end then, is, is, is really pointing to the importance of building on those kinds of experiences, generalizing, so that we do need institutions of civil society that are not that are not just about the macro, the micro, but are trying to generalize from the micro, because often that's where the innovation is taking place. But we need institutions, forms of research, forms of communication that can generalize from them into the kind of political programs we need at a, at a national level to back them up and an international level. Thanks. Well, we've had three terrific interventions, the last one ending on a, a great cry to revalue labour and think big about civil society. So I'd like to invite you all now to contribute from the floor. It's your turn to share your ideas and thoughts. Um, we have about 20 minutes, and so the only thing I would urge you to do, since you're being recorded, is please be brief so that you will give plenty of time for others to, 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 to join in. And there are microphones, and if you could wait until the microphone gets to you, that would be even better. Um, who might like to start? Is everyone going to feel shy at this point in the evening? I can't see around. Corners. Yes, over there at the back, the lady with the hat, and the gentleman next to her after that. Thank you all for speaking so eloquently on these issues. I'd like to address my question to Dr. Titley. Your analogy about Ireland as a petri dish or laboratory, I, also I would also characterize Bangladesh as um, a petri dish because many foreign companies and NGOs are working to create policies that are actually countercultural. To, um, it's a Muslim country, but in terms of um, the outcomes of these implemented proposals and social poli policies, are they intended to produce a result that can be implemented elsewhere? How relevant do you think um, statistics are that show that uh, for a couple of decades after the Second World War, public spending was increasing as a proportion of GDP in both the uh, US and the UK, and for, I don't know where else. And uh, there's a very significant loss in the debt, which was a lot higher than it is now. The national debt was much higher in 1946. It was crashing down at the time of the nationalizations. <coughs> very good. So, Gavin, would you like to respond first to Bangladesh and then maybe we'll to this question? Sure, or, 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 or respond to. Yes, both. I like what you've I like what you've mm. done with my semi-thought-through metaphor to give it to give it a lot more substance. I mean, what I was trying to to get at with that distinction was that on the one hand, what I was trying to resist in the analysis of, of Ireland, which is something which has happened internally, which is what you could call the kind of the culturalization of of the crisis. So, in other words, to say that what we need to look at is to look at some kind of mythical cultural properties which explain why this happened here and that therefore the, the the way in which we work this through has to be something to, has to be solved on those terms 
but at the at the same time, I was trying to insist on thinking about these kind of crisis sites as as networked and interlocked, but also, of course, it's quite particular and quite different. So resisting that idea that it's 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 a laboratory where the the consequences of austerity can be worked through, and can then be put on display. I think they were put on display, but not necessarily in the kind of instrumental sense in which you were, which was implicit in your question as to if it works here, it might work somewhere else. I think what was very much behind the politics of the Irish bailout was that it was to, 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 to encourage Spain along a different route. It was very much for, for it, was, it was very much to encourage the other larger uh, Eurozone countries in trouble to have a look at what might happen unless they were uh, unless they would adopt policies which were which, which were regarded as being necessary at that time. So, I mean, I don't think Ireland was particularly important um, in financial terms, although there was the possibility of contagion from the, from the banks, particularly to French and German banks. But I think it was very much a political gesture that the bailout was necessary at that time, as much as it was, if you like, an, an economic one. Um, Yes, I, I, I mean, but in, in, in the sense of a, a certain kind of real politic in the, in the Eurozone rather than, rather than anything else, yeah. I think there are two factors. One is that uh, in the, the great, the golden age, as it were, post-war golden age, was based on mass production and the enormous burst of growth that developed as that and part of the deal uh, that made that possible was the deal, if you like, with Labour, uh, which is, okay, if you, if, you, if you join in, if, you, if, you, if we have a social compact where you're buying into this, then, uh, then we'll deliver, as it were, the mass production. And that was the post-war deal. And uh, as it developed, particularly when the... When so where the steam ran out of mass production, which I would date probably in 1973, for all sorts of reasons, then that became more difficult. If you're actually, if the economy is producing less surplus, there's less to actually deliver on that side of things. And uh, as things got worse, that, that it, it became, uh, by when was it, in the early 80s, a real point of crisis, of social and economic crisis. There's a second point, I think, which those of you who work on public finance would do a great service to everyone else to, um, to make much more public, which is that uh, national accounting has great difficulty in accounting for public services. Uh, and th there are you know, wonderful, detailed, geeky ar articles in statistics journals about how the hell do we do this? Because we can't do it in the way that you measure ordinary private spheres. Um, you can't measure output uh, very easily. And also you can't take account, you say they actually have to do it by labor. It's a kind of labor theory of value operates in this sphere. Secondly, you can't take into account labor productivity, which in some of these spheres is very difficult to get the kind of mass production <laughs> increases of productivity, let's say in social care, that you have in a private mass production sector. And so um, I, I first realized this in, in part of a community movement against the cuts in the early 80s when we went into this because everything was being cut and yet we were told, I think it was by a, 
uh, first of all a Labour Chancellor and then, and then Thatcher, that we were all having a party on the rates when actually, it, in terms of the use value of what was happening, it was the opposite. It was actually, although it was appearing as though it was taking more money, actually in material terms, uh, there were more carpets being produced, but that actually appeared to have a lower value than the number of dinner ladies on the streets. So I think those, those two elements have uh, perhaps helped to explain some of the points you're making. There's a question here at the front. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask, well, really not really to ask, but to think about the failures of social democracy. Because that, you know, that's what Hillary was talking about. And I wonder whether it really has to do with failure to consult workers, or whether it doesn't have to do with a sort of flaw in electoral politics, that somehow technologies of winning elections were developed, which meant that you had to appeal to a tiny group in the middle, and then it mattered to have that sort of hegemonic ideology. And also parties simply became instruments of winning elections rather than into neoliberalism, which was the huge problem of why we've got to where we have. Do you have a thought on that, Hilary? Do you want her? Yes, I mean, I think, um, I think that whole sort of uh, nature of, um, our, it's where, in a way, our electoral system particularly um, was a factor. But I, I mean, in a way, I think um, the point about um, taking production seriously um, is, is kind of related in a way because if you had, um, I mean it's a bit sort of an if and, uh, of history, but if you'd had a, a strategy for change which recognized the importance of um, transformation in society, you know, the limits of purely of winning an election on its own, that that, that that was going to be crucial, you know, sort of condition, but wasn't going to be enough, and therefore the process of campaigning to win elections was very much linked to um, uh, processes of developing alternatives in production, in the running of services. I mean, in some ways, this point about GDP and the measures of value is related here, because in a way, if you'd had a... Um, a kind of um, political view of how the health service or the other services could be um, managed in a way that involved users and so on, then you would have to develop a different measure of value. You would have to recognize the, um, at the moment, sort of unmeasurable contribution that patients, users of a service make. But that's a slight diversion from your point. But so I think um, we're not talking here about like consulting workers simply. We're talking about a, um, a politics of change which um, recognises as, as central the sort of knowledge um, and capacity of the users and producers of a service so that, that in a way there's a, 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 um, a, a sort of in sync relationship between um, uh, the sort of values of the welfare state, the values of, of redistribution and the, um, the values of production, 
But in a sense, social democracy was always kind of a bit doomed because it was trying to um, achieve goals that actually were, const were in constant conflict and therefore constantly undermined by the sort of forces of production on whom it depended for, its, for the wealth to redistribute. So I, I wouldn't say it's like the whole explanation or the whole flaw, but I think it's, it's fairly, pretty important alongside the sort of narrow electoralism. And it meant that people, people didn't have a real vested interest in, um, even in public services. I mean, they had it, you know, enough to sort of say, yes, they supported them, but not a real understanding of how they worked and how they could improve it and therefore answer the sort of Thatcherite sort of market argument. Um, just um, actually two comments. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the one comment is addressed to Hillary. I was, I, I'm not coming from, I, I'm coming from Germany, you're from mm -hmm. a very different political system yeah. and a different political culture. And the first thing when you ask yourself, or oh, this rhetorical question, so what is missing or, or what is not there, the first thing that I said to Mary, well, public sphere is missing, you know? Mm -hmm. And actually what you expressed or what you described as public opinion against the, um, the cuts in, in terms of the NHS is for me, for instance, not public opinion. These are claims, these are opinions, but actually I think if, if we talk about this culture here, it's not a public opinion in a, in a traditional sense because the political culture and the philosophy which is behind every, everything here um, is, is a very different one, which, which then also links to, to our concerns how things are measured and what is measurable or if things should be measurable, which is of course very different in other um, political cultures which build on other philosophies. And then the second point is um, addressed to Gavin, um, and I very much uh, like when you say, well, it's also, of course about the interpretation of the problems, but what is also in addition to this is very striking to me when I read the newspapers here and the interpretations of what is going on, everything is framed as protest, anti-capitalist protests. And anti-capitalism protests, etc., etc. But actually, what we found out in a recent research program that we started here uh, at the Center for Civil Society and Human Security about what we call subterranean politics in Europe is that actually what is going on, for instance, in Germany and, and across Europe, is not against austerity or cuts, especially not in Germany, but is actually deep frustration, which is not interlinked Europe-wide, but it's which is there everywhere in Europe about politics and about um, not being able to actually participate, not in a traditional sense, but actually having one's life in one's hand and, and being political, so mm -hmm. to say, which is often then not looked at because we look at these protests as against capitalism, mm -hmm. against austerity, but we miss actually a broader culture or whatever, however subterranean politics, bubbling up ever. And it's very interesting because it's not, um, it's not linked, it's not one movement, but it's a phenomenon across Europe. And what we would then argue, well, actually, yes, you can solve the Euro crisis, but you don't solve the crisis in Europe, namely, which is a political crisis. Mm. So this is to end. And how do you, how, how, what, what has your research led you to pinpoint as the explanation for that? <laughs> At an early, well, at an early I stage. have an explanation, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and in a way, it relates to the point about social democracy, which is that I think nation states have become governments 
people who get benefits from being on top but have no sort of engagement in politics. Mm. And it's the crisis, if you like, has exposed... I mean, people have been feeling frustration about this for years and years and years, but suddenly there's a moment when they really want to express their frustration. Mm. Great. So let's take a question, another question here. Um, linked to Sabine's point about um, 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 hopefully it will become clear how it's linked. I've forgotten how it's linked. But my question's for um, Dr. Titley. Um, you um, gave the impression that um, Tina, the idea that there is no alternative um, in Ireland, was about um, a competition between the coherence of capitalism, um, global capitalism, and um, the coherence of an alternative being presented by these protesters um, and unions. Um, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you the question, um, which is: um, Is it not about um, there? Well, isn't there is no alternative about? It's not, our, it's not us, it's them. Uh, the go national governments are saying our hands are tied by the international system. And it isn't of saying there is no alternative because capitalism is the best. It's there is no alternative because we're not making decisions anymore. Um, and isn't that the kind of key point? And that's the frustration, um, which um, I'm sure you've thought a lot about, and, but it wasn't um, necessarily touched on in mm -hmm. your um, short presentation. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the key, one of the key... Um, ideas in, in a lot of these protest movements and, and that's why they reference each other because they realise that um, the, the problems are actually global problems. Please, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that's, that's a crucial point and uh, if, if I was to add other dimensions, if you like, to these kind of dominant accents, I think that would be very, a very important one because what I meant by, by, by looking at, at one interpretation of Tina as being what will you replace this putatively coherent system with, it's really a kind of rhetorical device and it only operates at the level of a kind of, you know, a fairly kind of palsied public sphere in, in, in terms of what you were talking about. I think you're absolutely right that there's been, there's been certainly, if, if we look at the way in which the politics around the bailout in Ireland has played out, there's been a certain amount of relief at this notion, if you like, that we have lost our sovereignty, is the kind of key phrase, we have lost our sovereignty. Now, According to the Constitution, if the country has actually lost economic sovereignty, the Constitution is suspended. So they don't, when politicians say the... Um, I mean, this is an interpretation you could put at it, on it. So when, when, when they say we have lost our economic sovereignty, it has to be regarded as another kind of political claim. In other words, it's not to say that the, the Constitution has somehow been suspended. It is to say that we can no longer be associated with what we are now doing in the name of an agency that allows us no room to manoeuvre. But, of course, what that leaves out is that there's plenty of political agency available to, for example, the state in terms of the economic possibilities we were talking about.
talking about. But also it leaves out, if you like, the affinities between precisely the kind of political class that Mary was talking about and these other agencies. And I'll give the example of the conditionality for the, for the privatization of state and semi-state assets. Now, of course, one of the things which has characterized the privatization of state assets in Ireland is that very well-connected, very politically well-connected private players have benefited disproportionately from what have turned out to be very, very, very poor privatizations, where if the value of the public good if you like, is simply evaporated from the public realm. So in terms of the privatizations which may be carried out in future, I am quite sure that there will be similarly well-positioned consortia, for example, which, don't sit, which, which sit somewhere between these two kind of levels of agency. So there's a, there's, a, there's a certain kind of getting off the political hook, but there's also kind of an ideological transferal in this idea of we've lost our economic sovereignty and we've become technocrats for the kind of ur-technocratic regime. What that does is simply suggest that nothing is possible at the level still of what is a representative democracy or a, 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 a nation state. And of course they don't believe that in other areas of, of governance. I, I have a quite a positive view on there is an alternative um, using new social media and particularly using sort of crowdfund platforms to actually bypass the sort of traditional capital allocation uh, mechanisms and I do see that as being a very very powerful um, force in moving forward and actually um, allocating the capitals correctly whereas at the moment the system actually just allows the, the big banks to actually allocate um, the capital whereas through the crowdfunding capital could be allocated to someone sort of social conscious to, to a pr particular project. Yes, perhaps we could put it in, in this form. I think the, the crowdfunding and, and you know, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending and all this kind of thing, which uh, Andrew Haldane, the head of uh, financial stability or risk management at the Bank of England, he actually, in his latest talk, he's a remarkable figure to have at this moment, um, has said that he thinks this may actually wipe away the banking system, the d disintermediation through all this, and it certainly has taken off in Asia in a big way, if, if you like, uh, using the internet to disintermediate banks. But the way I think it might be helpful to think about it is this, which is the power, the power of, if you like, the discipline of compound interest, which is really, if you like, capital is in this form, is particularly through the international bond markets. Not only, but this is partly. So how do you, to restore economic sovereignty, insulate yourself more against that? The NDP, which is the Social Democratic Party in, in Saskatchewan, uh, uh, always has had a tradition of trying to balance its budget on the grounds that it didn't want, you know, it wanted to preserve political sovereignty and they worked within that. But if in terms of our alternatives, and we think of you know, a, a hundred alternatives ways in which we could be independent. By the way, the co-op movement, that was their whole moving in the 19th century. They wanted to build an alternative economy in which, in the words of the Rochdale cooperators, labor employed capital rather than capital labor. And they did it, and they, amongst other things, established the co-op bank and so on. So, first of all, you've got mutual banking, which has a quite different way of operating in Germany 
is, is, is an example where they, they and the local state banks, you know, just imagine a kind of hackney bank, let alone, you know, if Ken Livingstone got in on Thursday, he should immediately start a London bank. But actually, I think in, in the German case, it's even a sub-hackney bank. You know, that you have, there are still over a thousand mutual banks in Germany and, what, 430 local state banks uh, which together dominate retail, the retail banking market. So this, this mutual is one side of it. Another side of it, which is very interesting, is if you like state, bank, state banking more generally and interstate banking. So one of the ways that we could think about getting out of the grip of bonds at the moment, what, what about this? Which is to follow the principles that ALBA, which is, I forget what ALBA means, but it's, it's the Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, all that grouping of Latin American countries. They, to our astonishment in fair trade, have taken the principles of fair trade, used the power of the state to say, okay, well, if, if we're importing coffee, it's going to be at that price because that's what is needed for small coffee producers to survive. And they've, they're far more significant in fair trade than our little civil economy movement. Now, if you take that, and there are other examples of that, of exchanging, Venezuela exchange, exchanging oil for Cuban health, is another example of that outside. What about us doing this with China? They've got a lot of money. Why don't we do a deal with China? Because what does China want from us? Well, they want everyone to speak English, by the sound of it. I mean, there's a lot of, a billion people, a lot of them want to speak English, and we're very able to do that. And more than that, it's, it's the educational system more generally, but they have one of their major problems in China, is how to do a, if you like, a social, how to contain the potential explosion of the new workers taken out of their traditional uh, uh, structures. Well, I think there's the basis of a partnership there, and we could s sell our education and all that we could understand for our social and support. Well, I think we have to. Well, there we are. Well, there we are. And that, I don't know where that has taken us. And apologies to all of you who would have liked to ask questions. We are um, out of time and over time. Just before I thank our speakers very much for this wonderful evening, I'd just like to say that there will be another wonderful event of this kind uh, tomorrow called The Politics of Squares with Laurie Penny, an Occupy activist and journalist, Ahmed Nagui, the co-founder of the Council of the Trustees of the Revolution in Egypt, and Helmut Anheyer and Mary Caldor, yearbook founding editors, and you're all very welcome to be there. But would you please all join me in thanking Robin Murray, Gavin Pitt, and Robin Murray.